Well, we all love good stories, don't we? Uh, Whether it's a story in a book that we're reading that we just can't put the book down. Uh, Over the past couple weeks, I've been at bedtime with August and Porter. I've been reading this book called Who Stole the Wizard of Oz? Uh, It's a kid's book. And it's about the book, The Wizard of Oz, that gets stolen from this library. And, it, and I was like, every night, I was like, what's going to happen next? And, the, and those guys were so excited. And it was like so hard to not just like keep reading a whole bunch of chapters to finish the book. Um, the final time we did read like the last three chapters because it was like getting way too intense. And I couldn't, I couldn't, yeah, I just had to finish it. But whether it's, whether it's a kid's book like that, right, or whether it's, a movie, right? You're at the movies and it's one of those glued to your seat movies where you're like, there's no way I'm going to get the extra thing of popcorn right now just because I'm, I cannot miss any of this story. Well, this idea of, of story is kind of in right now. I think especially probably in the last like 10 to 15 years in Christian circles, we, we talk a lot about your story, right? Your testimony, we, we call it your story now. And we talk about God's story as we think about telling the story or sharing the story with others, we have things like the Jesus Storybook Bible that we might read to our kids. Uh, when we were overseas and doing some ministry among unreached people groups, kind of the, the new focus and missions became storytelling, right? And we talked about storying the gospel and especially going into places that didn't have a, the Bible written in their language. It was all about telling the story of the gospel. And I think there are some there's some good things with that. But this idea of story is, is not something new. Um, I think as evangelicals, kind of broadly speaking, we, I think we've done kind of a poor job of finding ourselves in the story and of seeing the bigger story of the scriptures. So this recovery of story that we've probably seen over the last generation or so, this is, I think this is a good corrective for some things that we've kind of missed or, or lacked focusing on. But I would also argue that many Christians in America have adopted a bit of a truncated version of the gospel story, of the the whole biblical story, which it basically just comes down to, well, Jesus came and died to save me from my sins, and that's it. That's all we talk about. It just becomes this individualistic, how does the story relate to me? And we, we fail to look at the corporate aspect of it. So we read ourselves right out of the story, actually, when we make the story all about us. If you've been around Living Stone very long, hopefully you've noticed that we try to tell God's story from all of Scripture. We let God's story dictate our story. We look at his story first and what he's doing, and then we, we place ourselves in it. We see how we fit into the story. If you were around this past summer, we did that in the Psalms. We looked at creation, fall, redemption, consummation. And how does that apply to our lives? We want to be practical here, right? We want to see how does the Bible apply to our lives. We're not just just here to just give you a bunch of information like, hey, cool, look, here's here's this overarching Bible story. Whoop-de-doo. I mean, it's great, but if if we don't see how we fit into that story, it's not going to impact our lives. We also saw this a while back when we were in Genesis. We saw God's unfolding covenants. And whether it's our creation, fall, redemption, consummation focus in the Psalms or that time in Genesis, God's covenants, it's all pointing forward. It was all looking to how do all of the scriptures point us to Jesus. And Luke's gospel account ends with this kind of whole, all scripture 
pointing to Jesus being emphasized when Jesus appears to his disciples on the Emmaus Road. Luke chapter 24, if you haven't read it, go home and read it. Um, we've, we've talked about it many, many times here. Our church is planted from Emmaus Road Church, uh, which is that whole, that whole, the church is built on that whole story of God, of Jesus coming and saying, Moses and all the prophets, they were, they were pointing to me, they were writing to me, and all these things have been fulfilled. It's all about me. So, so we're going to eventually, at some point, when we get to the end of Luke, that's what it's going to all be wrapped up with. But it also begins with that. Okay? It also begins with that emphasis. And it might not be obvious when we first read it at first glance, but this is a really big deal in our passage today. All, all of chapters 1 and 2 that we're going to be looking at here over the next 6 to 7 weeks as we're kind of getting ready for Advent and Christmas, the birth of John the Baptist, the birth of Jesus, we're going to see this emphasis. We're going to see how the whole Old Testament points us to Jesus and we're also going to see how Jesus has come to fulfill these roles of prophet, priest, and king. These, these roles that people like Moses and David in the Old Testament, they, fulfilled, they had these roles, but they were always pointing forward to someone else who would come. So a little bit about the context of our, our passage here today. James just read Malachi chapter 3 and 4 about the coming messenger of the Lord that God would send Elijah the prophet. We know that that was John the Baptist who comes, so we see here uh, the foretelling of his birth is what we're going to be digging into. But there's this expectation in Malachi that this messenger would come and that he would come with a word from the Lord. But he didn't come quickly in human terms. It was 400 years from the time Malachi wrote and gave this prophecy until the birth of John the Baptist, and we, we like to talk about kind of 400 years of silence, where there was no prophetic word from the Lord. And the question that we are confronted with, as according to, to those scriptures, as we go from Malachi, as we go from Malachi to the New Testament, the question that we are confronted with is, where is God, and why is he silent? So if you're taking notes, there's going to be four questions we're going to look at. That's, that's the first of the four questions, and I'll mention them as we go. The first question, where is God, and why is he silent? And we can't just breeze through this. We can't just breeze through this passage here. Oh, just, okay, John the Baptist's birth foretold. Let's keep going so we can get to the birth of Jesus, right? That's what we're really all about. We need to slow down here. And we need to see what is going on. We need to see the significance of these events. And we need to feel the tension that God's people are feeling here. We need to feel this tension of, God, where are you? Why are you not speaking? 400 years of silence after you've promised that a messenger is going to come. 20 generations. It's a long time. We just saw the last... Two chapters of Malachi with that promise of the coming messenger. So there's, there's a promise of hope there. But the first two chapters of Malachi, I'd encourage you to go back and read the whole book of Malachi in about double the time it just took James to read that. The first two chapters of Malachi talk about judgment on the priests who have polluted the offerings and profaned the covenant. And Malachi is a great little kind of microcosm of how all the prophets are. It's the prophets come with a, me- a message of judgment for the people, and then it ends with a promise of, of restoration. 
there's hope. So it's that cycle of judgment and restoration. Judgment and restoration. If, if there's like two words you need to know if you want to understand the Old Testament prophets, that's it. Judgment and restoration. And that's the cycle that they continue to go through. So that it always ends with hope pointing forward. So the, the judgment comes on the priests and on the people of Israel for their unfaithfulness. But God promises that there will be hope and there will be rest, restoration. And I think it's interesting right here that at the beginning of Luke, so again, in context, in light of that context of those unfaithful priests, now we are introduced here to a different kind of priest. Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Here we have this couple. We have this priest, right? Righteous before God, walking blamelessly. So that means all must be well, right? Because they trusted God and obeyed him, and it's smooth sailing all the time. No. What are we told here? They had no child because Elizabeth was barren. And this has such a massive, massive significance in the story of the people of God. God has used barren wombs throughout the Old Testament as a picture of human impossibility. Just look at the history of the world. Look at all of our human progress. So many things that we take credit for. So many innovations in our secular age that we love to to pat ourselves on the back for. But all of our scheming and our inventing and our ingenuity... There is still one thing that we have no control over. We cannot open and close wombs. God alone is the giver of life, and he will not take a back seat to our attempts to unseat him from his throne. This is the issue that confronted God's people from very early on. You go all the way back in Genesis to Abraham and Sarah. Genesis 11.30, it says that Sarah was barren and she has no child. Her and Abraham were old. They were advanced in years just like Zechariah and Elizabeth. And this is what made God's promise that he would, he takes Abraham outside, shows him, says, look up in the stars. I'm going to make your offspring like the stars in the sky. And Abraham's like, how, right? It's unbelievable. Later on, Sarah laughs. But God fulfilled his promise. He kept his word and Isaac was born. And then Isaac's wife, Rebecca, is barren in chapter 25. And Isaac prays and God opens her womb. Parallel here to Zechariah and Elizabeth. God opens her womb and Jacob and Esau are born. And then Jacob's wife, Rachel, is barren. And God opens her womb and says, and then Rachel says, God has taken away my reproach, which is actually going to be the end of this last verse we have in this passage, verse 25. Elizabeth is going to quote that exact quote, that God has taken away my reproach. So the whole Genesis narrative, right, it starts off in the garden, be fruitful and multiply. And here we have God giving his plan to his people of how all the nations are going to be blessed 
and Abraham and Sarah are old and Sarah's barren, and it looks like that whole promise that God has given, how's it gonna how's it gonna be fulfilled? So that's I mean the whole Bible starts with that that tension, right? What's What's going to happen? How, is, how are the promised people of God going to continue on? And generation after generation, they come up against this struggle. So that's just in Genesis. A little bit later on, at the end of the book of Judges, what do we see? No king in Israel, right? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is about the worst that it got in, in the Old Testament, right? The people are just... I mean, it's a disaster, right? The whole book of Judges is a total disaster, and it ends with this picture of just complete wickedness, everybody just doing whatever they want to do. Well, how does God break through? Ruth is, is after Judges, but if you skip next to 1 Samuel, right? That's kind of the, the continuation of this, this quest for a king and what's happening. 1 Samuel, where we're going to be introduced to David, right? The greatest king in Israel, it begins with the birth of Samuel, the prophet and priest. What's he going to do? He's going to prepare the way for the king. But what's the problem in 1 Samuel? You have Hannah, right? She's being mocked because she's barren and she can't have a child. It says that God closed her womb. And she prays and God and she prays and she promises to God that if God gives her a son, she will dedicate him to the Lord and God answers her prayer. So again, we come to Zechariah and Elizabeth. They're doing all the right things. They're praying. They're seeking God. Zechariah is serving as a priest. But why is God silent? God is not just silent in that there hasn't been a prophetic word, right? He's silent in that this promise that God has given to his people for blessings and generations hasn't come to them, hasn't come to this couple that is doing everything right. I know this is a, this is a difficult issue, right? We, we know people who, who struggle with, with this. Um, it's not, there's not some just cliche thing like, hey, just, just pray and, and wait and trust the Lord and it'll all be okay. Um, you know, all I can say, I think, is pray and wait and trust the Lord um, and that he knows what's right. He knows his timing. But I also want to say, if that's something that you're struggling with, if that's something you, you know people who are struggling with, you're not alone. You're not alone in that struggle. I think we can take some encouragement uh, from this passage but this is, this is a challenging issue uh, that people face, and I don't want to make light of that. So um, seek the Lord and, and trust him in that. I think another application for this is it's, it's easy to over-allegorize this, uh, to, to ask, well, what are the barren places in your life? What are the places where God hasn't showed up or God hasn't provided and I don't think that's a totally inappropriate application, but I don't think that's the point here. The point here is to look to the God who has broken the silence and has come to rescue his people. This is a major theme throughout Luke's gospel. This idea of, of salvation and, and this idea of God's plan. 
It's really what the whole Bible is all about. And God always shows up. God always comes to the rescue, and God always fulfills his promises to his people. And it's not always in the way that we would expect things to unfold. It's not according to our own individual desires. So the next question that we have is, how does God speak and break his silence? How does God speak and break his silence? We see that in verses 8 through 17. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So how does God speak? Well, Zechariah is chosen here by Lot. This is literally a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for a priest to go into the holy place and to burn incense before the Lord. He's in there, and an angel of the Lord shows up, and he is rightfully scared to death. What are the first words that we see out of the mouth of the angel? This is the first time that the Lord has spoken to his people in 400 years. Verse 13, do not be afraid. What a great word of comfort. 400 years of silence. Do not be afraid. And I don't know if the angel is talking about, do not be afraid of me, right? Because you're probably pretty scared right now. Or if he means, do not continue to be afraid of your life circumstances that cause you to be gripped with fear and doubt and unbelief. No longer be afraid, Zechariah. God is here and he is speaking and he is giving you a promise. He says, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. When do you think was the last time that Zechariah prayed for Elizabeth to have a baby? I mean, it doesn't tell us, but they're already advanced in years, right? They're already old. It's been several years, maybe several decades since Zechariah has actually prayed this prayer. Uh, we don't know. Maybe, he, maybe he's you know, been reading Genesis and Abraham, or Abraham and Sarah, and maybe he still believes that God can open Elizabeth's womb in her old age, so maybe he's still been praying this prayer. Uh, again, I don't want to speculate too much, um, but I'm guessing it's probably been quite some time, 
We'll be looking uh, more at the fulfillment of the angel's promise in the coming weeks when we see John's birth, when we see Zechariah's prophecy. But it's clear here that, that God has big plans for John. He has big plans for this child that is promised. It says that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. So God has big things in store for him. Verses 16 and 17 are quoted from Malachi 4, 5, and 6, the last two chapters uh, in the Old Testament, the last two prophetic uh, verses, last two verses of, of God's prophetic word in the Old Testament. And right here, we're, the beginning of the New Testament, the beginning of Luke, he picks up right where that ended. And I think this shows an amazing continuity between God's plan for his people and what he is, he is here to do. So again, we have this this 400 years of silence like, seems like this big deal and this big problem, and it, and it was, but things pick up right where they ended, right? God breaks into history, and he picks up right up where he left off with his promise. It says that John has been sent to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That's in verse 17. It literally says to prepare a people who are prepared, Okay, there's this, this kind of this double emphasis on the preparation. So what did it mean for them to be a prepared people? What did it mean for the people of that time to be a prepared people? And what does it mean for us to be a prepared people? In Isaiah chapter 49, uh, there's kind of two halves of that chapter. The first half is the servant of the Lord who is promised Ultimately, I believe, pointing to Jesus. And also talks about the restoration of Israel. So again, remember this idea of judgment, restoration. So Isaiah is pointing forward to the restoration that's going to come, that God is going to bring. But it's not just for Israel. It's not just this, like, they're going to they're focus inward and, and focus on what God has promised them. Isaiah 49, 5 and 6. And now the Lord says... He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, okay, similar language here to John the Baptist being filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. So talking about the restoration. Then he says, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Israel was always to be a light to the nations, to be a prepared people, ready to be used by the Lord. Well, what were they to be used for? For their own comfort and prosperity? To just turn inward and focus on their own little camp? No, it was that God's salvation would go out from them and reach to the ends of the earth. Church, we are a prepared people in that same way. A people that God has chosen and has made ready. We pick up that mantle from, the, from Israel and we are to be a light to the nations, that his salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. 
out of the four Gospels, Luke's Gospel has the biggest emphasis on salvation going to the ends of the earth, on, on those barriers being broken down, especially the Gospel going out to the Gentiles. And I'm probably going to be banging that drum over and over and over as we go through Luke, okay? But this, we have to see this continuity. We have to see how these promises that God gave to his people in the Old Testament, they're picked up, they're fulfilled here, and they're given to the church. Again, we're not just here. We don't just come here to be in our holy huddle and to enjoy the good life. God has spoken through his word. He has come. He has broken the silence. And we are to be a people who long for God to speak, who are expectant for him to speak. It's why we emphasize the reading and the preaching of God's word, prayer, sacraments. This is how God meets with us. It's how he communicates to us. And because he has already communicated to us who he is and what he has done for us in Christ to save us from sin and death, we are to live out our calling as a prepared people and as lights in this dark world. But, just like Zechariah, despite the fact that God has already spoken clearly and decisively, we don't always believe what he says. Our third question, why don't we believe what God has spoken? Verses 18 to 23. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. Well, normal people don't just have angels appear suddenly to them and speak to them. Zechariah knew this. His question, how shall I know this, was walking by sight and not by faith. Humanly speaking, of course, this was impossible, right? The promise that they would have a child. This was impossible. And so he, he asks, how can this be? Well, how does the angel answer him? Three things. First, he tells him who he is. I am Gabriel. Gabriel appeared in Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 9. In response to Daniel's prayers of confession on behalf of the people, he he appears and says that God has heard his prayers. Gabriel and Michael are the only two angels in the in the Bible that are that are named. So this is kind of a big deal, right? <laughs> this guy who appeared back in the day to Daniel, he's standing before him. So I'm sure Zechariah's like, "Oh shoot, <laughs> look out!" He tells him where he came from. Uh, Gabriel says he stands in the presence of God. So he's a messenger sent directly from the presence of God to come and speak to him. 
And then he tells them what he was sent to do. I was sent, he says, to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Literally, the, the word here for the, to bring the good news is the word gospel. It's where we get the word gospel. So he says, I was sent to speak and to gospel to you these things. Okay? Using gospel as a verb here. It's the word where we get proclaim the good news. Um, the Greek is euangelizo, where we get evangelize. Okay? So Gabriel is saying, I'm coming to speak and to evangelize to you the good news. I'm, I'm here to tell you the good news about these things. And this is a word that we're going to see quite a few times throughout Luke. Luke uses this word, tw- between Luke and Acts, he uses it 25 times. In all the other Gospels, it's used once in Matthew, okay? So Luke has a huge, so again, just go back to last week, right? Luke writing to Theophilus. He's writing to, to proclaim and to tell him all these things that are unfolding. And there's going to be this emphasis in Luke and Acts on the proclamation of what is true, the preaching of the good news. And we're going to see that over and over, okay? So that's a huge emphasis in Luke's gospel, the, the proclaiming of the good news of salvation to the whole world. So this whole narrative here it begins with a messenger from the Lord, this angel, telling this priest that his son will come to be a prophetic messenger for the Lord, to proclaim salvation, and to prepare God's people for the promises that he has made to, the, to them. And then God strikes Zechariah speechless. And I actually take great comfort in Zechariah's forced silence. Because God speaks through Zechariah's silence. God uses his unbelief and his inability to speak for his own purposes. Right? God uses that for his own purposes. And I praise God that he doesn't strike you and me speechless when we walk in unbelief. That by his grace he decides to use our weak and feeble efforts our often trembling voices, our timid responses to people's questions when they ask us questions about our faith. In all of these things, he overcomes our weaknesses and he speaks through a prepared people. What a privilege that is for us to see God at work as his representatives, as he is reconciling people to himself, as we see him speak and see People respond. Which leads us to our final question. How should we respond to what God has spoken? Verses 24 and 25. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Elizabeth responds in praise and worship for what God has done for her. And we see a very stark contrast here between Zechariah's unbelief and Elizabeth's faith. Zechariah saw the angel and still disbelieved after this supernatural encounter. 
Elizabeth saw no angel. And my hunch is because Zechariah couldn't speak, I don't know that he was able to communicate to her what had actually happened. So I don't know if she has any idea what's going on. She simply trusted that God was at work in her life and in the lives of his people throughout the ages. She connects herself with Jacob's wife, Rachel, whose disgrace was also removed when God opened her womb and she bore Joseph, that great deliverer of God's people. And it's, I think, again, unlikely that Elizabeth had any idea about what was about to take place. Probably didn't understand her place in God's story of redemption. She didn't understand that her son would be the forerunner to the Messiah. And we come back again to this idea of story. The key thing here, I think, is that Elizabeth knew the author of the story. And she trusted him. She trusted that he was in control of the unfolding of the story that he had written. And that her part in the story was significant, even if she didn't understand how it was all going to play out. She responds here in faith to the God that she has trusted and walked with all of her life, even though she might not know what's going to take place. She responded in faith. Will we? Will we believe that our lives are a significant part of the story that God has written? That we, just like her, are called to respond in faith to what God has already spoken? That we are called to respond in in praise and worship for who God is and what he has done to save us? We have an opportunity this morning to respond. We have an opportunity to come to this table And to say, yes, yes, I trust in him. I trust that he is the author of my story. That he is the author of the story, right? That what he has told us about his son is true. That he really did come in the incarnation. He really lived a perfect life that we couldn't live. And he really went to the cross and died for us to reconcile us to God. And he really rose again on the third day and he really ascended into heaven and he's really coming back. And that's what we proclaim when we come to this table. We say Jesus died, his body was broken, his blood was poured out so that we might have forgiveness of sins. If you believe that, If you believe that story, and I don't mean it's just a tale, if you believe that that is true, that that is what God has done in human history, and that's what this whole thing is all about, that's that's why you're sitting there breathing, right? It's because you belong to God, and you owe Him your life. If you believe that, then you're a Christian, and you're welcome to come to this table. And if you're not there yet, if you say, you know, I'm Sounds nice, right? But I, I don't, I'm not there yet. I don't believe it. We're glad you're here. Uh, but this, this meal, it, it is a family meal. 
It's a meal for those who are part of the family of God, who have put their trust in Christ. So if you have not done that yet, we would ask that you would remain in your seat at this time. Uh, And I would love to speak with you more about what it means to trust in Jesus. But this is a time for those who have trusted in Christ to come, to take the bread, to take the wine, and to say, yes, I believe. And also to know that God is speaking to us. He's speaking to us right here through these elements, right? Through the bread and the wine. He's coming, he's saying, I am who I say I am. My promises are true, and I will meet with my people. I will, I will refresh my people. I will strengthen my people in the eating and drinking. That is what we believe. So if, if that is true of you, you're welcome to come to the table.